you to me, and I think for a lot of people, embody someone who is very confident. Have you always <laughs> been that way? Uh, yeah, arrogant. Uh, I mean, oh yes, confident, <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's funny. I was talking about this with my husband um, the other day about like how nervous I was when I was in high school and even in college. And he's like, I cannot even picture you as someone who lacks confidence. And I'm like, really? Because you know, like I was, I was pretty nerdy when I was growing up. Um, definitely not in the. I was not in the cool kids crowd. Um, probably until like 11th grade when I just stopped caring about what other people thought, which is maybe maybe where um, so much success is lent around. But yeah, I think my my parents instilled a ton of confidence in me. You know, they rallied me up. They gave me a lot of good coaching, um, a lot of interesting feedback, right? Things to self reflect on. Um, and then I learned how to be more confident just by seeking feedback. Right, like, so I'm confident that I can do a great discovery call. Let's put that to the test. And so I'd ask, you know, a, a leader, I'm confident that I'm a good friend. So I'd ask a friend, have I been there enough for you? Am I a good friend? Do you value our friendship? I'm looking for that feedback to reaffirm that what I think of myself or I think of this action actually is the truth and then keep building on that. There was a time when you weren't as confident doing discovery calls. How did you get confident? Man, I, I, so this was, I'll tell you, before the days of, of like us, of people, you know, on LinkedIn, sharing advice, giving tactics, all that stuff, I had nowhere to go to except for my leadership. And then like the little red book of sales, right? Like I remember reading Jeffrey's book, like in a bathtub on, on vacation. I was so excited about everything that I could get. And then I think much of what's led to like our success in Sam sales in my entire career, I just tested. Let me test this opener. Let me test this one. How do people react to that? What happens when I make this joke? What happens when I ask this open-ended question that I think I already know the answer to? And does it keep coming back the exact same way? And does my answer keep resonating in the same way? So it's test and test and test and test. It's like a funnel of testing perfect discovery calls, right? And then getting to what I think is the ultimate win, what we teach, what we use you know, every day, but it's, it's that right. Like what, what about you, Josh? How did you get so good? You know, it's very similar to how comedians sort of work out their material, right? They'll, they'll start at these little tiny clubs, even Seinfeld. I mean, I was watching a documentary on him the other day. Yeah. He works these tiny clubs and you see Seinfeld bombing in these clubs as well as all these other comedians and they work out their material until you see the special, but that special represents about nine months of testing things out. So many people, Sam, I think get into this habit of reading posts, consuming podcasts, and the information in and of itself becomes addictive. Yeah. Everyone has a different take. And sometimes consuming information can replace doing. You spend so much time consuming that it leaves very little time for doing. So it sounds like you've done a really great job of you. You get a little nugget, but then you actually try the nugget versus I think what a lot of people do is let me get more nuggets. So how do you know like, hey, I got something, I need to stop consuming and I need to start to do? I think two things I would say here. So take something, take one thing that you can learn, right? And that you can actually execute. Instead of learning, 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 take one thing and be like, this really resonates with me. This is a change that I can make, right? We have a lot of people, when I talk about the way to open up a perfect discovery call, it's just, it's one sentence, right? That you say, try that sentence out 
and then wait and see, does it resonate? Does it give you something, whatever? Start to master that piece and be like, okay, I've got my opener nailed. What's next? What comes after that? And then continue building on that foundation. But I will say trying out those nuggets, right? And testing to see what works and doesn't work is equally important, not only to see what works and doesn't work, but that you take the information afterwards and you try to understand what did or didn't work with maybe this particular audience give you an example you know i'm big on show me you know me i'm big on that rapport building all that jazz so i showed up to a call the other day with two very senior women on the call they both had glasses on and they had a big mound of curly hair well i wear glasses and i have naturally curly hair so when i got on i tried to build rapport and i was like oh you guys i was like i wish i knew it was glasses and curly hair day i would have worn my curls and i would have worn my glasses and they both went mm. and i went okay okay so i thought about it these titles, the, ge the geography of the person, the way that the call was set up, what can I maybe put together? Maybe it's a blip or maybe there's something that I need to pick up to think about the next time that I talk to similar geographies or similar buyer titles that maybe they're not as keen to do the report and they're just like, here's what we want to solve, help us. But at the same time, you can't get better at jokes if you don't try jokes. And I think part <laughs> of this too is putting yourself out there and saying, it's curly hair and glasses day. And if the joke bombs, which sometimes it's going to, yeah. you can sort of move on and you're not going to really have that big of an impact. But I think you sort of, it sounds like you're more wired to sort of take the risk. Like if you're feeling yeah. like you want to say something about the curly hair and the glasses, you're going to say it. And I think that's healthy. I mean, is, is that kind of what's going to, or do you say to yourself, I better not say this? Or is there like, I'm saying it, or do you not even think about it? I always think about it. My mind is running a hundred million miles a minute, as you you already know that, Josh. But I think I, I'm always I'm I'm out there. I'm gonna test it. I'm gonna give it a shot. I would say the other thing, though, I think that helps me be good at that is my personality, right? Like I'm always smiling. I'm always energetic. I'm always excited. I wake up like this. I go to bed like this, much to my husband's chagrin half the time. But I'm like this, right? Like I I think that that lends me to being able to do that. Because if I if you show up and you're like, oh. It's glasses and curly hair day. I wish I'd worn my glasses and curly hair. People are gonna be like, what are you talking about? Right, but at least like, you know I'm making a joke, you know I'm lighthearted, et cetera, even if it doesn't land. So I think that also has to be authentic with who you are, right? But like try, test, it all comes back to testing, giving it a shot, seeing what the response is, getting, building hypothesis, giving it a shot, seeing what that is, rinse and repeat, see if you're right, or see if it only resonated once or missed once. I love that, you know, you can learn anything that way. Right, you can take something and you can break it down into small chunks. You learn a chunk and then you learn the next chunk. I mean, I'm learning guitar now again. And my guitar teacher says, you know, you can't learn a song. What you can learn is the first bar of music. And a song is just when you start to learn a lot of bars and you start to put them together. But if you start to learn the whole song, you'll never learn anything because it's too overwhelming. So you play a bar very slowly in a certain way until you can do it eight or nine times pretty flawlessly. And then you add another bar. So I love this suggestion of like taking a small chunk. So just to make this even more real, you mentioned opening up a discovery call with a small, with a line. This is what I would call a bar of music. So let's say you do discovery calls now, you do them your own way, but maybe you're gonna try a new bar of music to start the discovery call. The traditional bar might be something that sounds like this. Hey Sam, my name is Josh, we have 30 minutes. Is that okay with you? Great, I'm gonna ask you some questions. You're gonna have some questions for me. And then at the end of the call, we can decide if it makes sense to continue. Is that okay? So that's a sort of an upfront contract, which we're going to talk about in a little bit later on, <sighs> but that might be how you're doing it today. Um, and so maybe that's working for you, whatever that means. But here's another idea Sam's going to share 
on how to start a discover call. And then you can test this, right? You can look at this as a sales toolbox and you can sort of take this tool and you can try it out and see if it feels good for you. And then you could add it to your toolbox. So Sam, how do you typically start a discovery call? And then I also want to understand the psychology behind it too. I think it's important to understand the why so people can maybe even make it their own. I'm gonna do something annoying and say a couple of things first. One, hopefully you guys can read the room, right? And you see my dread in my face of hating, hating, hating that opener. And there's a re there's a reason for it, right? Again, it feels so transactional, feels so formal, feels so like you read this off of a script. I think the other thing to think about is that to me, like generously, I think there are 20 things in sales that are black and white. You do this or you don't do this. Don't insult your client. Don't show up late for meetings. Don't show up on their doorstep with a contract. Hide in their bushes. That's about 20 things that we just black and white. There's no argument about it. You do not do this. Everything else, including my opener, is your own style. Josh's advice, your own style. My advice, your own style. Take what you like and what fits you and leave the rest, right? So our opinions are da -da 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 -da, opinions. So here's my opener for a discovery call, right? Number one, I always build rapport, show enthusiasm, bring that show me, you know me, right? I am showing them through our initial engagement that I've already done my homework. I know who they are. I know something about their space. I'm using that kind of walk down the virtual hallway time together to show them I came prepared for this meeting. Now, when I start the, when we get to the business portion of the call, right, I'll make my last comment, do my last laugh, and then say, Josh, okay, let's get into it. So I could tell you a million things about Sam Sales. If, by the way, Josh is an inbound or an outbound lead, doesn't really know who I am, I'm gonna give him some pillars of what we do, right? So Josh, I could tell you a million things about Sam Sales. What we do for social selling, what we do for sales training, what we do for executive LinkedIn branding, all of that jazz. But first, I'd love to hear from you. Tell me about your team. Tell me about your challenges. Tell me about your, the initiatives you have for the year. I'd love to just hear about the overall landscape on your side first, if that's okay. Right, so three parts. I'm gonna tell you about me, some pillars. First, I'd love to hear about you. Before you're deer in headlights, let me give you some crutches of what I'd love to hear about you. And then number three, if that's okay. And quite frankly, you've got 85% of the time people are like, yeah, okay, so where to begin? And then they don't shut up for seven minutes, which is glorious. Or you've got 10% of the time where people are going to say, hey, I bought you before, which you should know because you've done your homework. Um, we just have a few questions that we can move forward. And then you're going to have the other 5% who are like, you know what, we'd rather not do that. You tell us about you and the insights that you have and how we should use you and what other people are doing in the market, which is, again, why you have to come prepared to those calls. But that 85% is so magical because you're basically doing the, the equivalent of why'd you show up today, but in a much more professional and tactical way. It's almost like as you were describing it, I couldn't help but think that it almost gives the prospect like an emotional breath. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age where it's so rare that people hear you, yeah. Everyone's talking at you and you don't get anyone's attention. It, it sort of feels good to just talk to someone. It's almost like a therapy session, I bet it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, does it sound like that sometimes to you? Like people just sort of unload. They do and they apologize for it, which is the best part, right? Like that the end of that, and I'm like, I'm sorry, like I've gone on for so long. Or we had a woman the other day who's like, This is what you get after three o'clock. You're just gonna get me venting. And we're like, We're taking this is fantastic. But mm. but you you know, getting just approaching that call differently, right? Like one, we talk about being different all the time. The bar is so damn low in sales, right? We're all doing the same crap, the same salesy stuff. The bar's low for what our buyers expect. So when you show up and you say, tell me about you, I don't give a shit about me. Tell me about you, right? Buyers are like, what is happening? 
And then they're telling you how to solve their challenges. And I'll say one more thing we can dig, dig into, but when you come to the, 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 the call, right, with that kind of open-ended, very broad, not specific question, you're coming to the table to ask not about what would you like to change about the way your sales training is done today, but instead, tell me about your business. Tell me about the initiatives. And I'm going to pull a page from the Josh Brown playbook and tell you about the guy that showed up at my door the other day to do our holly shaping of our trees. I put in an inbound lead. I wrote that we needed our hollies trimmed. He came to the door and he could say, hi, let's talk about your hollies. And I could have been like, here they are, shape them. You could be like, great. Or he could do what we did, which is exactly what I'm advocating for. Hey, I saw your note about the trees. Tell me about the overall property, challenges you're having, things you want to do, etc. Now, I could have been like, shut up. I want to talk to you about my hollies. Or I could have done what I said, which is to give him an insane more amount of work with other challenges I'm having just because he asked a more open-ended question. Mm. Yeah, just by asking what other things are going on with your yard. <laughs> now, some people are going to open up. Now, here's the thing that I sensed when you were talking, Sam, is that you are genuinely curious yeah. about the answer to that question. You're not yeah. doing it to sort of check a box. Am I reading that right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I think for me, like the genuine curiosity is part of like my bones. Like I'm so excited, you know, to learn about other people and their stories and what's going on. My friend uh, always warns new friends we meet and say, Sam's going to hit you with a firing range of questions. Don't be alarmed. She's just curious. Um, it's also part of my upbringing being from Switzerland. Like you ask a lot of questions, you help make good conversation. Um, but to me, I feel like I can learn something. Con honestly, it's selfish for a ton of reasons. I know I'm going to figure out how to solve your challenges one way or the other, even if it's not me. I'm going to feel positive, even if it's not me, because I'm going to probably point you in the other another direction of helping refer somebody to you that can help you. And three, I can learn something. What challenges are you having that our other customers might be mm. having? What do we not know yet, right? So I'm getting a ton out of that by just asking that kind of, what's up? Let me ask you a question. Do you change it a little bit based on if it's outbound or inbound? Uh, by way of example, a few months ago, my wife was interested in getting a Volvo XC40. And she had done about three weeks worth of research on the car. She looked at a bunch of pictures. She was reading reviews. She knew quite a bit about it. And she really was interested in if it was going to be loud when she drove it, like road noise bothers her if the car's like really loud. That's all she wanted to do when she got to the dealership. So when we got to the dealership, the salesperson started to tell her all about the XC40. This car is amazing. It does X. It does Y. It does C. It it, it charges in this amount of time. It's got a, you know, a Google app thing built in. It's got even like a little trash can there. And she got real turned off by it because all she wanted to know was, is the car loud on the road? She was already sold on it. She was a kind of a further along in the buying journey, so to speak. So what I was hoping that the salesperson would have said when she came in is, what do you know about the XC40? She would have unloaded. And then he could have said, what else do you want to know? And she could have said, I just want to know what it sounds like on the road. And he could have said, let me get the keys and I'll shut up during the drive. Yeah. Right. So that kind of a thing. So how do you sort of adjust, or do you adjust that based on where someone is in the buying journey? Or is it sort of the same way you open it regardless? I think if we don't have any, I open it the same way regardless. The only thing that I'll change, right, is whether I give those pillars, right? If somebody it literally comes in through an inbound, uh, let's say an inbound form, and they say, I don't know, I did a Google search on you, I have zero idea who you are, right? We've got to give them some pillars, but still open that question that same way. Give them some insights of what we already know about their company real quick. Just again, lightly show that we've done our homework there outside of the rapport we built at the beginning. But then here's what we do. Once they're done talking, right, and we start to answer some questions, 
when we do talk about ourselves and say, let us tell you a little bit about where we could be of help specifically to what you mentioned today. Um, before I get in there, is, is this your first blush of learning about SAM sales or do you, have you heard of us before? Do you know much about us? And that's exactly, exactly what I say, right? Your first blush, um, exactly what that, that seller should have, that salesman should have done. What do you know? What do you know about the car? Have you already done your research? How much can I tell you? Or frankly, if he, if he says, how much do you know about the car? And she's like, I know everything. The only thing I want to know is this. He can be like, great. How quickly can I sell you this thing? Right. Save himself 45 minutes of chatting about the car, which he's probably tired of talking about anyway, because it's what he does all day. Right. So speed up the deal. Save yourself the time. Go home early. Call it a day. So I love that phrase. Right. First blush. The reason I like it is it sounds very casual and conversational. It's the opposite of I'm going to ask you some questions. You're going to have some questions for me. And then at the end, we can decide <laughs> if we want to continue the conversation. It's just not how people talk, really. And yeah. even the term upfront contract to me feels almost like you're trying to get someone involved in a contract during the first call. It just the name of it sort of Hate makes it. me uh, a little ill. Yeah. <laughs> as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's amazing. Like we, I posted the other day about um, the fact that I never have agendas at the beginning of my discovery call. Um, and I knew that this was going to ruffle some feathers, right? Some of the opinions I have, people are like, you're nuts. And I'm like, cool, that's just my style. But I never have an agenda because it feels too formal for me, right? And in that, a lot of comments came back about the upfront contract. Here's the thing to me, right? we're talking strictly discovery calls. This is your first call. It's you and me having conversation for the first time. If I come to the table with that upfront contract, or if I come to the table with an agenda, right? I think about that the exact same way I think about a first date. So if I showed up, Josh, you and I go on a lovely date. It's very exciting. And I'm like, Josh, thank you for coming today. First, we'll order some drinks. Then perhaps we'll get wild with snacks. Then I want you to tell me about yourself. Then I'm going to tell you about myself. Then we're going to see if, you know, if we think we'd hit it off and if we want a second date. No, Jesus, right? And here's the thing. Not only would we never run a first date like that, but we don't need to run discovery calls like that because we know what we're here to do. Why state the obvious? I think we feel like we have to follow these frameworks and we have to be this particular person and use this particular language every single time we're on calls when instead we can just show up you're a human being shocker i am as well double shocker and we can talk about this and have an honest conversation of how we can help each other yeah just it just doesn't flow naturally right so it's just my take on this too like if you have a, an outbound lead let's say let's just use an example for warm box if you guys aren't familiar with warm box the problem they solve is when you cold email people 50 or so percent of those cold emails never actually reach the inbox. They end up in spam filters and they have a way to get more emails into inboxes, right? So let's say you sent off an email like that and someone bit or you made a cold call and someone bit and now someone joined a call. One of the things that I often hear when I do the, listen to these discovery calls is they don't reference that. So there's like this disconnect, right? So one of the ways from an outbound perspective, and I'd like to get your take on this is after this sort of chit chat stuff, you can say, hey, uh, so Sam, as I mentioned in the email, We've been working with about 2000 inside sales teams. And what we've been seeing is 51% of cold emails end up in spam. I was just curious, are you guys tracking your delivery today? Deliverability today? See, I didn't like say, I'm gonna ask you some questions. I didn't tee up the question. It just sort of naturally flowed into it. And I say, are you familiar with warming up inboxes? Well, what is that, right? Like, what is that? Or yes, this is that. And then I could sort of adjust the conversation from there. Right. So this is the, Sorry. this idea, like, I didn't say I'm going to ask you questions. I just asked the question. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Hold on. Just one second. Does your dog agree? Yeah. My dog's very, dog. very frustrated. Um, 
I don't know why people always feel the need to, to ring the doorbell. Sorry, beauty of working from home and dogs. You have a Ruby uh, dog on your side, so Ruby is your dog's name. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's, here's what, here's my thought, right? I think the, the formality and the kind of the way we do that and say those pieces of, um, I'm going to ask you some questions, let me agenda set, all that. I think it's just because what conversations you and I have had before, Josh, people don't know what good looks like. They haven't heard a conversational call happen naturally, so they don't know what to follow. They don't have a good example to follow. And I think something that's interesting, right, when I talk about these things, right, that I don't make full calls or I talk about the fact that I don't agenda set or whatever it is, right, or don't lead with insights and so forth. When I do that stuff, people people push back, right? And they push back on the upfront contract. They push back on the things they've learned from Sandler and Spin and all that stuff. To which I say, I have never once been formally trained on any of these sales methodologies. Never. I've never gone through a training. I've never, the only book I've ever read is The Challenger Sale. All of this stuff is just how to people to me, right? So it just, again, it, it can be a natural conversation. And I think, again, it's so different than what your buyers go through every day that it will be what a refreshing breath of fresh air. Is that the definitely, is that refreshing yeah. breath of fresh air? It's a thing now, it's a thing. It's a thing now, we're making it. I, I love what you said there. You know, I, I work with a lot of sales managers and oftentimes they'll tell me that their AEs are not good at discovery calls. And then I'll ask them, well, do they know what a good discovery call is and have you practiced what good is? And the answer to that usually is no. And that's a great point you make, which is you can't get good at something that you haven't been taught and you haven't practiced. In fact, most people have been practicing wrong, specifically around listening. So you've gotten really good at not listening. Practice doesn't make perfect. My music teacher said practice makes permanent. And so oftentimes you kind of build in these habits because you want to know what to do. Um, but I think you're making a great point here, which is like, understand the reason behind it. And if it doesn't feel good for your soul, you can try some things. Right. Um, if what you're doing is working perfectly and you love it, absolutely keep with that same tool. But if it's not feeling quite right on you, for whatever reason, you can experiment with some different tools. As Sam said, and I 100% agree, there's lots of ways to sort of do this. Do something that you actually like and enjoy because you're going to spend a lot of time doing it. Consider one, one thing too about the discovery call process, right? Like I think we sometimes just think it's such an easy road roadmap of what to do, but there are these really small nuances of how to run a great discovery call that I think are unseen. So it's not a playbook. It's not giving them a script to use. Even think about, Josh, I know you see this. We listen to discovery calls. We see the rep get on. Maybe a second person from the reps team gets on. They sit there in absolute silence, not talking to each other. Then the ambiance of the call when the buyer joins is dead air, which is really exciting. And then let's say there's multiple people joining the call. I hear this every day. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining. Uh, we're just waiting for the rest of your team to join. And then there's dead silence afterwards for 60 seconds until other people join. And it's like even the art of that, how do you connect, build rapport, ask them questions. If it's an unexpected guest, feel free to ask about them. Didn't see you on the invite. Tell me about yourself. What's your role? Let's kick this call off. But even more importantly, that ambiance, right? Talk with your peer, have a conversation, bring that new prospect that joins into it. Think about if you were at a conference and you were expecting a prospect to show up to a call and the two of you were standing at a table, just wait or for like a meeting, you guys were standing at a table at a bar or whatever. And then this person starts to walk up, right? You see them entering the Zoom or I see them walking up. You're not gonna go like, shh, shh they're coming and then stand in silence. You're gonna keep talking and have your conversation, right? So why do we do that differently on Zooms? I mean, when I was at Disney with my boss, we were in this meeting with about five executives and we were waiting for the heavy to walk into the room, the primary yeah. decision maker. She walks in and she is wearing the loudest 
Tony Llama boots I had ever seen. And my boss is kicking me under the desk as if to say, you better not say anything about her boots because she knew my personality. And I'm like, you know what? I got to let it fly. Anyone that's wearing boots like that wants to be seen. Wants to be seen. So I said, those boots. That's all I said. <laughs> and she spins around. And then I said to her, she shows them off. She says they're, they're conversation starters. And I said, you know what? They're loud, but they're not as loud as my socks. And she goes, show them. And I lift up my things and I'm wearing long. And it became a thing with oh. us. We ended up getting the deal. I don't know if it was because of that, but it was probably didn't hurt. And it became a thing. She would send me socks during the holidays, like little Hanukkah socks and Jewy things kind of things. And then I would send her like little tiny boots when I saw like little tiny boots or interesting things. It became like a thing. So in this world of upfront contracts, when everyone sounds vanilla, these mm. tiny little things make a difference because people don't just buy what you sell. They are buying the feeling of you. It's a transfer of you. It's a feeling. You opened that buyer up, right? When that big, important person that walked into the room, right? That is used to people probably sweating and being nervous and doing upfront contracts with them every <laughs> single time. Instead, you were like, what's up, boots? Look at my socks. And you just brought your personality to it, right? I think that's the other thing that's lost. Business isn't meant to be strict and formal and stodgy and vanilla. It's We can still be super professional while bringing our authentic selves forward, right? And, and there's no harm in that. In fact, we're better for it. But what happens though? We go into the sales scenario on a call or something, and now all of a sudden we don't sound like ourselves. We're sounding very professional and formal, and we're following this trip. It's not who we are. Right. But it's how we're, we, we believe we're supposed to behave, I guess, yeah. right? I think what you're yeah. suggesting here is you, you got to understand how to structure a call and sort of the big beats, but then you got you to gotta have a little personality. Um, Completely. Completely. Bring, bring that humor. Bring uh, you know, your personality in there. Talk about your interests. Ask them about themselves and their personal lives. We talk to renewal um, managers all the time, and they're like, how do I speed up my renewal? How do I get an in sooner? And I'm like, well, what do you guys talk about outside of work? Like, what do you know about your clients? And it's always met with, what do you mean? <laughs> like, they're baffled at the idea of doing the show me, you know me on the personal level, right? Like, what do they do on the weekends? You know what they do nine to five. What the hell do they do five to nine, right? Mm. Like, what are they interested in? And I think that stuff, like showing our personality, show somebody it's okay to show their personality. And if you're coming at it from like that strict robotic script, you're never gonna be able to go off script and really get to know each other. Love that. I think it starts with being curious. All right, Jim, let's shift gears. Yeah. Topic number two, I hear you love making cold calls. Is that, do I have that right or not? <laughs> Favorite thing on the planet. Oh my God, I've made thousands of them today. Today. Here's here's my take. So I think um, this is something I've been mostly quiet about. Just little comments here and there. I did make a viral uh, TikTok. I'm only on TikTok, by the way, because of you, Josh. Um, uh, but my I did condolences. make condolences. My condolences. <laughs> <laughs> I made a viral TikTok um, on not taking cold calls, and I, I got a lot of uh, a lot of angry comments. Not making cold calls. So here's the thing. Uh, in my career, right, I've broken a ton of records, 13, um, in fact, and I've done that as a leader and as an individual contributor, having never made a cold call. I've got a couple of thoughts on this, right? So I think a cold call, let's define it first and foremost. It is, I don't know you, you have never heard from me or never shown interest. Maybe you've heard from me. Maybe I've sent you 4,800 emails via outreach, but you've never heard, heard never responded and shown positive uh, inclination. And I call you and I interrupt the middle of your day because I have something I want to sell you. Now, 
people will argue like, well, you're not really selling them. You're giving them something, you know, to help solve their challenges. Uh, yeah, maybe you are, but they haven't given you permission. They haven't shown interest. They haven't shown intent. They haven't shown anything so far. And we're calling them up in their middle of the day. The other thing I would say, you know, on cold calls to me just feels rude, right? Like, I don't know what you're doing. I know you're busy. I know you're probably back to back. The other thing about cold calls, and I'll give one argument at the end of all of this, but we've got uh, 18 touches now. It takes 18 calls to get someone to pick up the phone. That is a lot of calls. Then if we do get a positive response and we get somebody who says yes, we know that more than half the time they're saying yes. They're saying yes because they're uncomfortable and they just want to get you off the phone. And why do we know that? Because the average show rate, the data that was just released is that it's 37% show rate for cold calls. So here's what you're telling me. I'm going to make 18 calls, harass some poor sap, and then have, if that even converts, have a 37% show rate. That's insane to me. Here's the thing. What I, what I find is that there are some people who are so like, cold calls are it. Like, you're crazy to not like cold calls that are so excited about it. And I'm like, why are you excited about it? Like, tell me what you think it is about cold calls that really make a difference. And they're like, well, this one time I got an executive that picked up the call and they took a meeting with me. And I'm like, out of how many times? Here's my thought. Number one, write great emails. Take all that time where you would make 18 cold calls times how many of your prospects you're trying to get on the horn. Take that time and write 20 phenomenal emails. Show me you know me, listen to their podcast, pull a quote out from something that they recently wrote, pull something out from what their CEO or CRO is talking about. Invest in who they are, what their business is doing, what's going on in their vertical and write a fantastic email. Hell, Think about writing 20 emails to all the prospects that you have in oil and gas today. Then you can streamline and keep on oil and gas tomorrow. Tap to the next day, semiconductors, right? Makes it very efficient. I bet that if you do that and you send these great emails with great subject lines and you actually think about what the buyer needs, you will get a higher conversion rate. And then if you are in B2B SaaS tech sales and you are not using LinkedIn to engage with your prospects, to connect with them, to start conversations, you are stuck in the 90s. You're stuck in the early 2000s. There is so much here for you that you never have to pick up the phone. And you can frankly build a much different relationship with those buyers than by cold calling them. <laughs> Not to mention the, the debilitating feeling of rejection that you have as a salesperson when you cold call. Because as you mentioned, there's a lot, even when you do connect with people, there's a lot of like rejection. And that has to sort of get to you a little bit, I would imagine. I think I think I could deal with the rejection. I think what it is for me is like the being from Switzerland and like having gone to Swiss finishing school and having parents who just hammered manners into me from a uh, from a small person, uh, from a small person when I was a peanut. I just feel like I I just I feel um, I feel like it's like calling calling someone I don't know after like ten o'clock. Like you just don't do that, right? Um, and I, I feel I feel icky doing it because I know that their day is busy and I know they haven't given me permission to do that. And if they but really they haven't given me, you permission to email them either. They haven't. But by emailing them, it's landing in their box and then they can decide what they do. So people would say that, too. Right. Like, well, if I call them. Right. That's the same as an email. It's just like sitting there waiting. And if they pick it up, they pick it up because it's an unknown number. I pick up every single cold call that I get because I always think it's a deal. It's never a deal. Um, people might pick up because they think it's their kid's school, or their mechanic, or- Especially if you're spoofing their area code. Right, exactly, precisely, right? And then they're like, 
when you answer. I ask this at conferences all the time when I give speeches and I'm like, raise your hand if you like cold calls. And I have one person in the audience of like 300 who answers, right? When I say, raise your hand if you like getting cold calls, right? And there's the one person who's like, I love it. And that's, you know, it's usually like Josh Braun who is excited to, <laughs> to evaluate your cold call strategy, Josh right? Braun. It's the sales trainer in the room who's like, I love them. <laughs> but nobody else, nobody else likes them. So be smarter, be smarter by your outreach, have more dignity. You're better than a cold call. I'm going to get some hate for that dignity. Is, is there a way to use both? Uh, so there's one advantage of a cold call, I think, over all these other mediums. Hmm. And the advantage of that is that you can actually have a conversation with someone yeah. and you can actually get feedback when you're actually having a talk with them. This idea that you have to make 18 dials, that used to be the way it was. There is technology now and services that allow you to have about 12 to 15 conversations for every 40 or 50 dials. Yeah. services like what Ryan Reiser offers with phone rate leads and a couple other text solutions. But you can you can now have 12 to 15 conversations with the people you want to talk to on tap pretty consistently. And if you have been sending some emails and perhaps they are somewhat aware of who you are, do you think the phone can add to your success in that area if you take away this idea that you can't get people on the phone? Because that that problem has been solved with parallel dialers, with people like Ryan Reiser who are determining the people that are most likely to pick up the phone and then with virtual assistance with technologies like Connect and Sell. Yeah, totally. I, I think there's also, so I think that the speed, the speed of which that can be done, right? If you are comfortable cold calling and this is something that you wanna do, that speed, right, can be, um, can be sped up basically. I think the other thing to think about, right, when, when you do invest in those companies is to understand what the connection sounds like for the buyer. So if I pick up the phone, right, we've all gotten these calls probably even today where you pick up the phone and it goes bloop and then it connects with someone, you know, you know that they're not authentically calling you. You know, you're the, you're one of 700,000 people that have been auto dialed today. The other thing is, I, I do think that there are opportunities where the bolder can think about trigger based cold calls. So if I send you an email and I see this is the third time you've opened it, let's say in the next 10 minutes, last 10 minutes, and then you've sent it to somebody and I can see somebody in Oregon and California, whatever I've opened it. I've got two ideas about what's going on with that email. One, you're really interested and everybody's talking about it, or two, it was really bad, and you're passing it around to laugh at me. So hopefully it's the first, right? And then give that person a shout, and you can say something, be totally transparent, and say, it's Sam McKenna, I just sent you an email, as you can imagine, we have pretty good technology on our side, and I saw that a lot of people on your side opened it. I'm hoping that means you guys aren't laughing at me, use a little humor, um, but it was actually a good email, and you guys might have something, we might have something that could help you. Um, would you be open to chatting about it, even if not now, at a later date? Mm. But then you so, know, hopefully there's interest, right? There's right. So, so this idea that maybe if you're sending emails and you're and you're tracking them, you can then use the people that are quote unquote showing some digital interest, digital body language to sort of yeah. call and and maybe compliment mm. that. And they also have uh, technology that doesn't beep. So there's this guy Ryan Reiser. If anyone's listening yeah. to this, he does this thing where he has a service, and he determines the people that are most likely to pick up the phone. We could talk about how he does that at a later date. But what happens is when he gives you your list back, and I've tried this myself and with some of the clients, you'll make 50 or so calls. And what you'll see is about 15 to 17 actual connects and conversations. So it takes that out of the equation. Um, yeah. But you know, then it becomes like, how good are you on the phone? Because I have found, Sam, and I'd love to get your take on this. Not all cold callers are created equal. 
Um, <laughs> if I'm pretty good on the phone and I understand and I have a hypothesis as to how I could potentially help you and I'm coming across in a way that's going to create a little interest and intrigue, um, I have seen that those calls can open up. They don't all convert into a meeting, but you sort of can get some more information and get them to open up, especially if they've, they're familiar with you from the email. Um, is there some, some softening in your position for people that are doing it that way, where they're using tech, not, they're using like a service like Ryan to get the connects. They're calling people that have expressed some interest via their opens and clicks, and they're very dialed in. This is my person. I'm not calling a bunch of different people on this list. I'm not calling seven different titles. I'm calling one title with this specific problem that I think they have and this specific talk track. Do you think there's a, a room for it there or do you still think not not something that I would recommend? It's so it's again, I think this is one of those things about style, right? In sales that everything's different for everybody else. So for me, it'll you'll just never you'll never find me doing that. That's sad. I think you bring up such an important point, right? About cool callers not being created equal. And we know, right, Josh, you and I and our listeners, we know that we get so many cool calls. So it, I don't, I can't even think of one that I've gotten in my life that's been good, right? Because we get nervous on the phone, we follow a script. What I would say, right, is make that investment in someone who can come in and talk about that great cold call, how we can actually show up in a meaningful way, how we can show up to be human, be mindful of using the scripts and the tactics that everybody advocates for that we've all now heard and are terrible. Some people love the, Josh, do you have 37 seconds for me to tell you why I called? No, bye. <laughs> I'll uh -huh. hang up on that poor person. Yeah. But let's just think about how, how we can soften that up, right? So if I would call you, I might say something like, Josh, it's Sam McKenna. It's likely that you've never heard from me, but or never heard of me, but I'm the CEO of Sam Sales. I run an organization that does XYZ. I'm almost certain that I'm catching you at a bad time, but I'm so glad you picked up. I'd love the chance to find some time in the future to talk to you about what you're doing with your sales training needs, how you're helping your team become better prospectors, cool callers, social sellers. Do you have any room in your schedule where we might mm. have a chat and you could tell me more about that? So I think positive notes, right? Like thinking about, I'm, I suspect you've never heard from me or never heard of me. I suspect that I'm reaching you at a bad time because maybe that person's like, this is a great time. I'd love to talk. Right. But I think a little self-awareness there also goes a long way. Several months ago, I'm in the car with my wife. My phone rings. I pick it up on Bluetooth. And this is what I hear. Hi, Josh. My name is Kendra with gravy. I'm calling you through the drive through at Starbucks. And I was like, hi, Kendra, what, what are you drinking? She goes, a macchiato. Would you like me to pick you up something? I'm like, Kendra, how can I help you? She goes, oh, sorry. Sometimes I get so caught up in Starbucks, I forget what I'm calling. Again, I'm with gravy. I was on your site and saw that you're selling a bunch of courses and was wondering, what are you doing to recover failed payments for people that their credit cards expire? Are you like sending them automated emails or are you using a service? And I sort of said, I don't even, I'm using Stripe. I, I don't even know what you're talking. Like I, it sort of opened up the conversation. She had a great sort of icebreaker that warmed it up. And then she quickly sort of asked me a question that got me sort of like, what are you talking about? What is, I mean, failed credit card payments. Do I have that? Like, is that a thing? And sort of, so then she said, well, I said, I'm using Stripe for that. And then she said, it sounds like you've logged into Stripe and you're checking to see which fail, which credit card payments are failing. And I go, I have never done that. And she goes, well, if you'd like, I'll send you instructions. You can go check. And if you're seeing some issues, we could talk. Does that sound okay? I go, sure. She sent me a little doc 
I logged into Stripe. Turns out I don't have the problem, but it was a great example of like mm-hmm. a cold call. And where I think good cold callers can do is they they ask these questions. I call it poking the bear. It's very challenger okay. based, where you're like making the prospect scratch their head and think, what? It's almost like if you were to call the Warmbach example, and I say, Sam, I know your team is sending a bunch of cold emails because you have a big SDR team. We are working with about 2,000 teams. Our data is showing that about 51% of those emails are landing in spam. How are you enable? How are you ensuring your team's emails don't end up in spam? And then just shut your mouth. That's gonna, that's gonna get some kind of a. Well, we are having 90% deliverability. To which I'm gonna say, Wow, can you share your secrets? That's amazing. Or they're gonna <laughs> most likely say, What do you mean? Like, wh- what? How do, you, how do we like that kind of thing? But you have to have a perspective, and you have to ask that question, not in a leading way. But hey, Josh, how are you ensuring that the emails your SDR send don't end up in spam? Mm-hmm. Well, Let's talk about, yeah. Yeah. Think, think about how you can, you like you translated something so exactly right of how we should even write that outbound email, right? We're thinking about that buyer. We're thinking about a specific challenge that they would have based on the scope of who they are, right? And we're teaching them something. Like that's yes. the whole idea in that first email. We've got to think, we ask you a question, teach you something about a challenge that you might have, and then also think about how how we can overcome the objection, right? So Josh might say in his mind when he's reading that email, right, not on a cold call, but he might say, I don't have that problem. So Kendra would write and say, you might think you don't have that problem. Here's a document of how you can check to see if you do, right? So I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to introduce the idea. And I'm going to also, so let's say Josh goes, you know, you go and you find, you're like, crap, I have that problem. You immediately think, what else does Kendra know that I don't, right? And that prompts the conversation because you think this is going to be a value to you. If Kendra writes you an email instead and says, we're the leading provider of recapturing veiled payments, whatever, you're going to delete that email and then never want to work with gravy ever again. I love that. The the key phrase, and Chris Voss calls this labeling, but the key phrase that she said, which didn't make me feel like I was doing my job wrong, was it sounds like you log into Stripe to check to see if you have failed payments. And what happens with these labels is if you mislabel, people correct you because people love correcting, but they don't like being corrected. So it's a really nice sort of approach. All right. I got time for one more topic with Sam. This is a good one. Sam, why don't salespeople take no for an answer? They're trained. <laughs> you gotta hear no nine times before you take no for an answer. Um, t- what do you think the root cause of this is? This is a very popular philosophy in sales. It's all over the place. And so salespeople have these books of rebuttals and I've, I've been on calls where I've seen people using these things. Um, let's talk about the root cause of it first. What, where do you think this is coming from? I think this is just, again, like this is what we're taught in sales methodologies, right? Where we're taught all of these like super specific things that we should never do or never take no for an answer, never give pricing on the discovery call, never send a proposal without next steps. Like these are all things that are in a silo without taking additional information into perspective, right? So Josh, you and I talk about how you're like, I'm a vegan and you still get people, you're not a vegan, but how you still get people, I don't think you're a vegan. You still get people who are like, you must buy my beef. And you're like, man, I don't know what to tell you. It's not going to happen. You're not going to change my point of view. The other thing that I would say, right, is like, we've got to think about when we're getting those no's, like, why, why are we chasing a vegan to sell them beef? Why are we pushing down this door 
when we could instead go over around to our lowest hanging fruit, right? It's like, there's not one, this, we don't have to get this one deal. There's tons of opportunity out there. So I don't know why we put on these happy ears. We chase deals that are unqualified. We chase the vegans of the world with our butchering service. <laughs> yeah, I think this, I think this really starts with intent. I, I talk about intent a lot because I think it's so powerful. And so I'm starting to learn more about mindfulness and meditation and Buddhism. I, I really, there's so many parallels between this and sales. When your intent is to talk everyone into your thing and to mm. book a meeting with everyone, what ends up happening is you behave in ways that are consistent with that intent. So you end up saying to someone who says to you, thanks for telling me about your meat service, but I've been a vegan for 30 years and I don't believe in killing animals. You take that as an objection as opposed to a truth, right? Because it's your job. Your intent is I got to talk everyone into buying. So I think the root cause is intent. And the way out of that is to merely shift the intent, not as a mechanism to get a sale, but the, the sort of two millimeter mindset shift is to discover if the prospect has a potential problem rather than assuming they have the problem, right? Sort of this idea of like discovering versus assuming. And when you have that intent, when you're not sure, you have a hypothesis, but you're doing what Kendra did, which is you're asking this question and then you're giving the prospect a little space to talk and be okay if it's not a fit because your job is not to talk everyone in, it's to sort. And there's Do lots we, of people that you meet. I think that changes things because when your intent is different, you say you sound differently. Do we think it could be an, an ego thing? Do we also think it's the, it's the thrill of the challenge, right? Like I am going to walk away in my sales career and think about the story that one time that I sold beef, meat, whatever, to a vegan. It makes me think of the Seinfeld episode with Elaine, right? Where she's, she's so excited about the, the guy and everyone's like, I think he bats for the other team. And she's like, I can change him. And we're like, no, you can't, <laughs> right? Like maybe, maybe it's the thrill of the hunt of, you know, of that too. Um, and thinking I can probably convert this person. The ego is at the root of most of these destructive behaviors because <laughs> you feel like the prospect is doing it to you. Right. right. So this idea of being able to sort of let the ego go, which is another, we could talk about that for a whole other episode. <sighs> That's a skill, right? So I'm, I'm personally working on this now with a lot of mindfulness work that I'm doing this idea of being in touch with your ego and knowing that it is a thing and that your thoughts, what you think affect how you actually feel. And most people's thoughts, they're not even aware of them. They're not even thinking about their thoughts and they just feel a certain way because of their thoughts. I mean, you happen to be a very happy person, Sam, but some people can imagine they wake up and they're having these thoughts of, oh my God, I can't believe I gotta go into this job and they're in a bad mood, they don't even realize it. So when your You've intent is like, team? Yeah, like no. So this this intent, like your, your your ego is, I think a huge part of it. It's like it's my, I'm going to show them this this yeah. idea. But uh, there are, to your point, lots of there are lots of meat eaters out there. Go find the meat eaters. It's not go your job to talk everyone. It's not your job to talk everyone into being a meat eater. I that's think right. That's the, Disqualify, Josh, and move on. <laughs> Sam, you've said it all, as you often do. If people want to find more about you and what you do and what you have to offer, where can they go? Pop over to LinkedIn, come say hello, but pop over to our website, more importantly, uh, samsalesconsulting.com. We've got a great newsletter that comes out every week. We've got great sales trainings, resources, all kinds of events, women's leadership group, so much, uh, most of which, 90% of which is free of charge. Um, so come in, come and hang out with us. We'd love to meet you. And I will say this, I subscribe to Sam's newsletter and I don't call it a newsletter. I call it a revenue maker. There are tips <laughs> in that newsletter that are not fluffy stuff. These are things that are real actionable and small that you can actually take and do. And you, you, what you'll see is you'll start to have more conversations. 
And the reason mm -hmm. I say it's a revenue maker is that the more conversations you have with people, the more money you make. That's really kind of simple. I think that's a universal principle. And Sam's newsletter allows you to sort of have more conversations with people. Um, the opposite of that is also true. So go ahead and definitely check out Sam's newsletter, sign up for free, sign up for it. And what the hell, pay for stuff. Like pay for, pay for the good stuff too. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thanks, right back at you.